Sup Thrill Seekers, I'm Dev. And I'm Connor. Welcome to episode two of Mass Hysteria. <laughs> All right. So to start this off light, I figured I would let you all know once and for all that Devin is not, nor has she ever been, a New Hampshire resident. This is a point of contention okay. in our relationship. I have two things I would like to add to this, um, unscripted. One, Connor and I looked up the crime rates in our towns recently, <laughs> and I have more street cred. My town crime rate is, hometown crime rate is slightly higher than Connor's, um, though nothing compared to where my first apartment was. But the New Hampshire thing, okay, if you live on a border town, like a, I also a live state in a border, border town, and I do not claim to be if from If no New one knows your little, like, 2,000-person town, it's way easier to tell them that you live in a big city. I live in New Hampshire. Okay, well... <laughs> yeah, um, whatever. Tell yourself whatever you need. Anyway, as promised... Since we're airing out dirty laundry... Since we are airing out dirty laundry... I'm just going to tell you about these uh, stuffed animals he's been yeah, seeing. Yeah, this stuffed animal story. So, in a New Hampshire town... Right next door to where I live, and my job is in New Hampshire, so I am allowed to cross state borders. Border police, just so you know. You don't have to stop me. Then you uh, can if you choose. <laughs> uh, on one of these back roads, so uh, me and a couple of my friends have seen this. There's this house, and it's kind of like, doesn't look like there's a lot of activity there. Sometimes there's cars there, sometimes there's not. Sometimes they're in the garage for like a long time. It's really kind of weird, but you know, over the time as you go by, you start to notice this. So anyway, another thing that we noticed is he, the man who lives here, has a very um, large and lifelike stuffed animal collection. And we're not, we're not hobby ha- hating. Let's no, just make I, one thing clear. Honestly, we're sitting in a room with stuffed animals. We can we can prove this to you, Devin. Do I not like, own like a large amount of stuffed animals? <laughs> like Connor rides horses. I make my own clothes. Like we have weird hobbies. Exactly. It's fine. But it's cool. but this is the point. That's yeah, interesting. Yeah. So he does all kinds of weird things with them. Sometimes they're on the roof. Sometimes he has them like in a circle in his yard and he plays circus music. <laughs> this, is, this is all 100% true. I swear to you. And the other night I was driving by and I even have a picture of this. I was just driving by. wasn't even thinking that I was going past this house. And I look at the car and I'm like, that's weird. There's like a bunch of dogs in the car. So I slow down. And no, these are not dogs. There is a stuffed lion or tiger sitting on the hood of the car. There's like... um some kind of cheetah or something in the back seat. And there was some unidentifiable animal on the opposite side of the car. I couldn't get a good enough look. But they are just sitting in this car in the middle of winter with the windows down. The car is off. But to keep them warm, they did have multiple scarves. And they were very nicely colored, very bright. (laughs) So I will keep you updated because this is an ongoing... uh, investigation this is a regular occurrence and connor's wondering who stole his collection i honestly i'm I'm a little bit jealous (laughs) that this man dresses his stuffed animals nicer than connor dresses himself yeah where do you get these scarves where do you get these scarves so uh we obviously started off a little bit lighter because connor you have quite a heavy case today don't you i do and before actually i apologize for interrupting but before we jump in i know i can't stop i can't can't stop won't stop um if this case is a little heavy for you, and you're, like, worried that we're becoming um, suckers for true crime, we do love true crime, but we're suckers for mysteries, for ghosts, for all of it, and next week's case has to do with arson. So if murder is a little heavy for you, don't don't lose faith in our podcast. Yeah, this we'll be following forever. it up with 
ghost stories, crazy stuff to We come. love everything. This we is love just, everything. This is just our life. Hang out with us for 10 minutes and we'll probably do like six different things. We, so, we don't discriminate. We do not Connor, discriminate. Connor loves the homeschoolers. I do love the homeschoolers. This story is about a homeschooler and also about like uh, a very horrible murder that happened in a town, a New Hampshire town very close by to where I live in Massachusetts or grew up in Massachusetts. And so, you know, it was interesting because it did kind of like have an effect on, you know, my community and the communities nearby. So anyway, again, it is very graphic. Um, we will cover it obviously with sensitivity in mind, but please take care while listening. Mount Vernon is a small town in Hillsborough County, New Hampshire. It has a total area of 16.7 miles and the population was as of the 2010 census, 2,409. Which in is the 19... not a lot of people. No, that's a, it's a tiny town. Like, you can almost drive through this town and miss it. I've gone through it a like, bunch of times. You probably not only know your neighbors, but you probably also know the people that live two streets over. Oh, yeah, I'm sure you do. Over. Yeah. Oh, yeah, absolutely. So, in the 1950s, it was known locally for its agriculture, uh, particularly chicken and egg farming. In the years since, the ag industry has basically dried up. There's, like, I think a couple dairy farms, maybe, mm -hmm. and some small hobby farms. Like, and the dairy farms might not even be cows. It, I think there's like a, like a goat dairy farm too. So, I mean, cool stuff, but like definitely, you know, very small scale. Excuse me, and um, no real stores to speak of, save for one. It's called the General Store, and from what I could find, it's operated in the same location for the last 120 years, save a couple years here and there when it changed ownership or whatever. Hashtag a hundred and twenty years. So you're probably wondering or thinking that this is all pretty unremarkable, and it definitely is, which is why in 2009 a brutal murder rocked this community to its core and forever changed the lives of some. So on October 4th, 2009, an open 911 call was placed from a Mount Vernon address for Trow Road. Um, so I did a little research, and an open call means that when the 911 call was placed uh, th and the dispatcher answered, there's no one speaking or it's not, um, like coherent like they don't get like oh this is what's happening um is and it because it like disconnects or just like it like... can be but um usually when these happen um people assume or the dispatcher assumes and that's why they call it an open 911 call and the officer assumes that um it's either like some kind of hostage situation or home invasion something like that where the person on the other end is not able to speak and in this case there are reports that the dispatcher could hear whimpering and that there was someone on the other end of the line, but they oh, weren't geez. getting, like, a coherent thought or sentence Account out of, of what them. Happened. Yeah. So with only this information, that there was an open call placed, um, a police sergeant from Milford, New Hampshire, was dispatched to Mount Vernon, the neighboring town. So I'm going to pause here. Just this kind of drives home the point of how small this town is. is and this is actually true for a lot of the New Hampshire towns around us and probably even some Massachusetts ones. Um, but it's such a small area, then there, there's not a lot of people. There's, you know, not a lot of like tax dollars. So the police department is not full time. And at this time... Oh my God, the police department was part time? Yeah. Jeez. Like, I mean, the officers patrolled, I think, during the day. Uh -huh. But I mean, it's true of even a couple other New Hampshire towns nearby. Um, they'll send a state trooper like at night, but there's just not an officer on duty. And uh, but that's just how small these towns are. It, like Milford too. Is Milford smaller? Was Milford just like helping out? Milford's a bigger Vernon? town, and there okay. may be I don't know I didn't look up all the details of that, and there may be some kind of like reciprocal thing that these two towns do as a trade um, type thing. But anyway, this was common. This thing, yeah, this, this was pretty common. And um, this nine one one call was forwarded to Milford, and a Milford police officer showed up in Mount Vernon, which is just the neighboring town. 
So the officer was named um, Sergeant Kevin Furlong. He was from the Milford PD. He arrived at approximately 4.15 a.m. Uh, according to court documents that I found, um, Sergeant Furlong said he saw a light on inside and he peered in through a window and he saw uh, an injured and bloody young girl oh, laying on the floor inside the house. Uh, he said he broke in through the front door and quickly located her. He said she was covered in blood with multiple wounds, including a slice on her neck and face and a severe injury to her foot. This was 11-year-old Jamie Cates. 11? Yeah, she was She's 11 years grader? old. Jeez. Yeah. Um, Jamie reportedly was trying to scream but couldn't get a sound out. So Officer Fur or Sergeant Furlong said um, during his testimony that he told Jamie that he was a police officer and that he was there to help. And he picked her up to carry her outside. And uh, Sergeant Furlong says that Jamie managed to whisper to him, I think my mommy is dead. Okay, this is horrifying yeah. and shocking. Not only the little girl, but also I'm sure the uh, officer Furlong was Oh yeah, I mean, this. can you, uh, or Sergeant Furlong, I mean, Sergeant. can you imagine? This is not common in this area. Like this, you know, with, this is a very, you know, it's New Hampshire or Massachusetts, but this is, we're all very close. These towns, it's a very small area. This is not common. Like It's easy to go. Like, you can, in three minutes, you can cross four towns. Yeah, lines. and, like, it, they're just sleepy little towns. Um, so, uh, after this point, I did look, and I couldn't find exactly what happened to Jamie once he brought her outside. But at this point, you know, he's called for backup. You know, people know what that he's going to the house, that there's a bloody girl, all of this stuff. So, obviously... Mom yeah, so, yeah. obviously, you know, this is way more intense than maybe they were initially thinking. Um, and one officer that was specifically named... And he was actually also, uh, during the trial, um, a witness. I um, mean, he spoke directly to Jamie, and that was Officer Eric Wales. He was also of Milford. I just wanted to mention his name because it seemed like he played a pretty big role in this. So anyway, after this, um, Sergeant Furlong returned to the house to search, and he found the body of Jamie's mom in the master bedroom. Oh, God. Um, Kimberly Cates was a 42-year-old nurse, mother, and wife. And on October 4th, she was brutally murdered by Stephen Spader and Christopher Gribble with the help of three friends. Three? There were five guys? There were five of them, and they were all under 20. 20 or under. Four of these boys broke into the house on Trow Road on the night of the murder. They broke in with the intention of robbing the home and killing anyone they found inside. So this was... It was premeditated. This was premeditated and okay. planned. Um, but interestingly, or crazily, which just kind of added to it, is they had never met the people in the house. They didn't know the people in the house. So they, they, literally, they literally had no... picked a house at random. They just, like, threw a dart and was like, hey, Essentially, okay. yeah, they, this oh was God. not, like... I mean, it was premeditated in the sense that they had uh, apparently done some, like, drive-bys of the area, but there was not a specific tie to this house. It was just the one they chose. And did they pick the area because they were figured, like, it's a sleepy town, there's... Yeah, it's a sleepy be... town, and if you look at the road, I did, like, look up the address and stuff. This house was well set off the road. It would be easy to just pull down the driveway and, you know, turn off your lights. No one would probably know you're there, which probably is why they chose it. Part of why they chose it, maybe. Uh, it's very nonsensical, and that's kind of the craziest part of this and why it another reason why it gained so much attention is it was like, why would this happen? And, like, why would they do this? So, anyway, um, Stephen Spader was the ringleader. He was 17 years old. And, like, okay, he kind of looks like... Have you seen Toy Story? He looks like Sid from Toy Story. Yeah, he kind of does. He's With, like, the dark... T-shirt, the, like, really close buzz cut. Yeah, yeah creepy. No, he's, he's creepy looking. He's definitely the creepiest looking of all of the boys, like, if you were to look at pictures of them. He really does look the most sinister, and I don't think it's just because of what he did. He just does have this look about him. Yeah, um, like, he he looks evil. Yeah, he does, he does, look, he looks evil. So anyway, they were calling this club the Disciples of Destruction, and he had told his recruits that this home invasion was to be a rite of passage for club members. Oh my god. Yeah. It's like some twisted fraternity. So Stephen Spader, um, Christopher Gribble, 
and two other guys who I will name later. Um, so there was five of them originally. There was before five them originally. Yeah, the fifth one I'll, we'll talk about later on. Okay. Um, he was not there. There's only four here. Um, so they broke in through a basement window, I believe. Oh, gee. I'm, I'm like, horrified. Like, whenever I am in the basement too long from, like, visiting my parents, I get really creeped out at night. I know. They are creepy. So they broke in through the basement, and they uh, went upstairs in the house, and they went through all of the rooms. It's not a huge house. Um, I believe when I looked it up, it's, like, a three-bedroom house. Okay. So, like, um, like, a, like a family house, basically. Yeah, like a normal family size house. Uh, so they went in the bedrooms. Um, initially, they didn't find anyone. Uh, in one of the bedrooms, it said that they found an iPod that was plugged in and charging. Like, that's a 2009 throwback, I know, an iPod. I know, an iPod. So they found this iPod, and they ended up taking it and using it to kind of, like... Like as a flashlight? Yeah, as a flashlight. I don't even think it had, like, the flashlight app in 2009. There's, like, lighting I screen. think they were, oh you know, like, like we used to do. Anyway, they went in the two bedrooms, and they didn't find anyone. And so when they go into the third bedroom, it was Kimberly Cates and Jamie, her daughter. They were sharing um, a bed in the master bedroom. David, who was um, Kimberly's husband, was out of town. But Jamie was an only child? Jamie was an only okay. child. He was out of town, so they were sharing a bed. Aww. Spader had a machete. Are you kidding me? No. And he almost immediately began attacking Kimberly with it. At, they were talking loudly at the time, and so I'm not sure if he hit her first or if she woke up. But at some point she woke up, and she thought it was her daughter. So she said, Jamie. Oh, and uh, and then she, at some point, as they were starting to attack her, she said, please, you don't have to do this. Everything will be okay. Um, one of the other boys said that he heard her say that he wasn't directly involved in the murder, but he was there like and could hear it. Yeah. But Spader showed no mercy and continued to bludgeon her with the machete. So Jamie, um, Kimberly's 11-year-old daughter. Literally in fifth grade. Yeah, she's in fifth grade. Said that um, her mom, her mom screaming woke her up and she tried to jump up like immediately. And she jumped into the arms of one of her attackers. This attacker was Christopher Gribble and he grabbed her. He had a knife and he attempted to kill her while she fought. Oh. Left for dead. She crawled to the kitchen after the attack, after they had left and dialed 911. So she was the open call? Yeah, she was the open call. Oh, and you said earlier she couldn't speak. Like she was Yeah, speak yeah. Her. And that was because they had um, slit her throat and her jaw was also broken. Oh my God. Um, Sergeant Furlong reported that he went, but when he went back in the house, he quickly found Kimberly's body in her bed. She had multiple stab and slash wounds on her body. Uh, later during the trial, uh, Dr. Jenny Duval, coroner, identified that Kimberly suffered 32 sharp injuries and blows to her body, mostly affecting her head, neck, and torso, left arm, and left leg. So he just like oh, he just like went attacked at her. her everywhere. Yeah, oh it was my. like merciless. Did they say ever how he got a machete? I feel like. You know, we could probably do some research into I mean, that. I if you really wanted a machete, you'd find a way to get it. Yeah, I mean, you would. Um, they're not that hard to get. You can honestly get some machete-like objects at, like, hardware stores. That's People true, use actually. them to cut down trees and stuff. Or brush. Um, some of the wounds were indicative of Kimberly trying to fight back against her attacker. Like, some of them were on um, kind of her forearm. Like, she was lifting her arm up. To, like, hit back. To try to stop them. And on, on the palms of her hands and on her fingers. Dr. Duvall also testified that Kimberly was alive for every single one of these wounds. Um, cause of death was determined to be exanguination. Meaning she bled to death. The murder weapons were determined, again, which we know, um, to be a knife and a machete. So who had the knife? Who was the one that... Was Christopher. That Christopher. Okay. Christopher had the knife, and he used it mostly on um, Jamie. But he did believe stab um, Kimberly with it. The murder weapons, um, or most of Kimberly's wounds, were consistent with the machete. So back to Jamie. The daughter. Um, who's the daughter. Uh, Amir Teginia. He was a plastic surgeon at Boston Children's. He testified during the trial that a blow lacerated Jamie's face and it was delivered with such force that it broke her jaw. Um, another... did, did he like repair her? Yeah, he was, okay. he was one of the surgeons that did a lot of work on her. 
And honestly, I've found pictures of her. She's a beautiful girl, and you would honestly not know that this happened to her. Another blow, this one to the back of her head, was hard enough to crease her skull. A machete-like object, the doctor said, cut through and severed two pieces of her left foot. Does she have... Were they able to reattach her foot? Uh, no, she's missing, a, or at the time of the trial, which she was 11, she was missing a part of her foot. She was able to walk, but it did affect her movement and her walking. So she was missing a part of her foot. Okay. That is permanent. She also had a broken arm and stab wounds on two sides of her heart and a wound above her hip so deep that it nearly penetrated her abdominal cavity. Oh my god. Both the knife and machete were used on Jamie. Do they say, like, if it had hit her abdominal cavity, if she, do you think, well, it just seems like she's... Like, I, I mean, she's an insane survivor. That's yeah. amazing. Yeah, it is amazing. Uh, the fact that she was conscious. And this is the craziest part. Um, Jamie told the police that she survived by playing dead, even as the assailants kicked and hacked at her body. Oh my god. Yeah. So she's sitting there. Just laying there, pretending she's dead. So they would leave her alone. That's so smart. I don't and think I would At 11 that. years old, your mom is getting attacked. You're getting attacked in the middle of the night. And you have the wherewithal to do that. And then play dead and crawl to the phone and call 911. This girl is incredible. I would not do that at 25. I'm amazed by her. So on October 6, 2009, two days after this murder, uh, four arrests were made in connection with the attack. Steven Spader, again, he was 17. Christopher Gribble, he was 19. Gwyn Glover, who was 18. And William Marks, who was 19, were each arraigned at um, the Milford District Court, which I drive by very regularly milford and new hampshire so here we're going to break it into two parts i'm going to dive in a little bit more about um christopher gribble because there's some interesting parallels in the fact that he was actually homeschooled and he grew up in a very religious home which i also grew up in and i'm obviously not a murderer um but just kind of interesting the parallels and um Devin is going to talk a little bit more about steven spader at the end i will also cover a little bit of the trials we like we just decided that like steven spader has gotten a lot of attention and we're like you know we don't need to give him any more attention um obviously we wanted to kind of talk about christopher gribble because of his uh similarity and upbringing to connor but (laughs) um yeah we didn't want to give extra attention to steven spader so we're just going to talk a little bit about him at the end but if you're interested in the case there's a lot of information Yeah, we will again we will link all of this and there's some interesting um wmur like news clips um something that really struck me when learning more about christopher gribble uh was how like almost like cavalier uh nonchalant nonchalant he sounded when i was watching a lot of his statements like he could uh, literally be reading a grocery list yeah he could be reading a grocery list he has like no emotion about it or he's like describing it in like a detail where you can like be like yeah this kid is really into what he did and it's like very disturbing also during that i devin and i were watching and we're like he sounds like someone we listen i mean we listened to this 30 times yeah we listened to this over and over trying to figure out who he sounded like and he sounds exactly like Scott Disick. Uh, Connor, I think you mean Lord Disick. <laughs> this, I must confess, I watch a lot of Keeping Up with the Kardashians, and uh, this is exactly who he sounds like. He sounds exactly like him. Lord Disick. Yeah. Okay. So anyway, so this is uh, from Sergeant James Garrity's uh, arrest report. Once this report is filed, I found out that it's called a Gierstein affidavit. So just a I've little... I've never... I didn't know that. little fact for you. Um... I'll, I'll be sure to remember that next time you have an arrest report. Yes, definitely. So following the murders, police were on to at least some of the suspects within 14 hours of the commission of the crime, aided in part by Jamie Cates' description 
of the suspects and the their desire, the suspects, to recount their experience to several friends and acquaintances. Okay, so basically, like, in his affidavit, he was saying, like, they were going around bragging? Yeah, they were going around bragging. They were telling a bunch of people. And we'll talk about that a little bit more in a minute, but... Um, and not, like, people in DOD. Like, they were telling outside people. Oh, like, yeah, they, they were telling this. friends and family. Oh, my God. And just, like, random people. So Jamie was able to identify them as one of them, she said, was bald, which that was Stephen Spader. He was bald. Um... But other than that, I mean, obviously she was being attacked. Um, she, she's remarkable. Yeah, she's an amazing child. Like, <clears throat> what an amazing human. And, like, they looked like normal, yeah, like, quote-unquote normal, normal boys. Yeah, and it's dark. White guys. You're being attacked. Um, two of them were not actually close to her, so I don't think she identified them. She did identify them as being spoken to, and she said at one point Spader told someone to steal some jewelry. But other than that, like, you know, she did have some description of them um but a lot of the reason they were discovered is because they just couldn't keep their mouths shut so anyway um you know they were arraigned on the 6th so uh yeah they found them pretty quickly in his police interview um gribble told the police that he and spader had robbed a house near spader's home for items spader lived in brookline um as did gribble um and interestingly gribble his home was probably around two to three miles away from my home growing up. I definitely rode my bike past his house. Did they say, so if he was homeschooled, did they say how he met Spader? Um, I am not totally sure how he met him. Um, Gribble obviously wasn't homeschooled at this point. He was 19 years old. He had graduated. Uh, okay, right. um, and um, Stephen Spader was not in school either. Okay. Um, so I'm probably, probably just I'm assuming they were crowds. just running with yeah. the same bad crowds, yeah. According to Gribble's statement, um, this is again from Sergeant Carey's affidavit, Spader and Billy Marks, Billy Marks is William Marks, he was one of the other um, um, suspects in the house, um, had located a house in Mount Vernon in a remote location. Again, like we talked about earlier, it was kind of an ideal house, even though they didn't know um, anyone there. Spader and Gribble agreed that they would break into this house, and if anyone was at home, they would kill the people inside just for fun. Oh my... So this was a, like... I know we talked, but, like, this was 100% premeditated. Yeah, and in one of his interviews, or part of his interviews to the police, Gribble said that he'd wanted to kill someone for a long time. Um, Gribble said that Marks and Glover, Quinn Glover and, again, William Marks, they were the other two suspects in the house. Or, like, the, so, but they were the ones that didn't participate, so they were just, like, Yeah, they were kind of periphery, and they, um, you know, they stole things, but they did not hurt, uh, they did not personally attack Jamie or Kimberly. But anyway, they were all in on the plan and had known that the plan was to break in and kill anyone there. Quinn Glover um, denied any involvement in the plan or the crime, telling the police that he, Spader, and Marks had gone to a Walmart in Amherst around 2 a.m. on Sunday, then drove around Milford and Mount Vernon for a while. Glover told police that he experienced an anxiety attack during the drive and asked to get out of the car to go for a walk. Glover said the car stopped on a dirt road, drove away, after which Glover blindfolded himself and smoked a cigarette and meditated. Oh. So, I don't know. This was all a lie because later he confessed and pleaded guilty. So Wait, so he's just like, my, they drove my car away. I was too busy capturing my zen. Yeah, basically. Okay, yeah. That seems yeah. to fit your profile. B.S. During the course of the investigation, it became pretty clear that Glover and Marks were not directly involved in the murder. 
Glover testified that he recoiled in horror, clutching his ears, but that he could not drown out the screams and thuds of the machete over and over. Um, during his um, sentencing, he said, There is nothing I can ever do that would make up for my despicable actions, or for the cowardice I showed in doing nothing to stop or prevent this horror that I helped set in motion. Glover ended up pleading guilty to robbery and two counts of burglary. Um, prosecutors say that Glover was the first to actually break, um, and he told them everything he knew about the attacks committed by Spader and Gribble. I'm just, like, in shock at their, how bold they were and confident that they would get away with it with, like, you, you have four, you have five people that you're, four others that you're dependent on them not, not saying anything for you to get yeah, away with this. Exactly. And then you're going to go around, like, bragging about it? Exactly. I don't know. Yeah. So, um, we'll actually go back to the bragging in a minute, but just to kind of get Glover out of the way, um, he was granted the possibility of parole in 2017, but not released. He's currently incarcerated in Vermont, and according to um, corrections officials, the earliest he could possibly be released would be um, 2029, so he is still in prison. So William Marks was the um, fourth boy in the house. Um, he was a little bit more involved in the planning of the robbery and the murder than it seemed like um, uh, Quinn Glover was. Um, so William Marks reportedly stood in the doorway of the master bedroom and witnessed the carnage. He did nothing to stop it. Um, Marks initially lied about his involvement to investigators. Weeks after, he had conversations with his father about selling his story to a, ma a national media outlet to make money. Um, that never happened. Um, and he was charged um, with as an accomplice to first-degree murder. He pled guilty to that, plus conspiracy to commit burglary and burglary. He is um, serving a 30- to 60-year sentence. Good riddance. I'm pretty sure it's illegal to sell your story to a national... Oh, I think it is, too. Yeah. It like, And I found some articles about his dad, too. It seems like they were a little bit uh, kind of scummy. Yeah. Does, his, does his dad get anything after his dad? Or... Uh, his dad has actually done a lot of interviews, which if you look him up, I can't remember his name, his first name, but William Mark's dad, if you literally, if you Google him, there's a lot of articles. Of all of the parents of the boys, William Mark's father definitely spoke to the media more than anyone else that's disturbing yeah yep so i talked a little about a little earlier about um how part of the way the police were able to catch these guys so quickly was because the they had a very strong desire to uh recount their experience to friends and acquaintances is it like specifically spader and gribble yeah it was specifically okay. spader and gribble the other two seemed like they were a little quieter about it um during um, his opening remarks, um, Peter Hinckley, he was the prosecutor on this case, said Spader and Gribble couldn't contain themselves. They talked about it, about how it would be on the news, and told friends and even, even acquaintances about the murder, showing some people the murder weapons. After reading in the Telegraph, on the Telegraph website, that Jamie Cates had survived, Spader teased Gribble, saying, at least I killed mine. Oh my god. They couldn't keep quiet about their crimes, Hinckley said. No remorse, no regret. No mercy. In the end, they could not stop bragging about what they did, and they certainly weren't as smart as they thought they were. Um, so, uh, before the attack, in his interviews, Gribble reported to researching ways to make homemade chloroform. Apparently, the search was not fruitful because there were no reports of chloroform at the crime scene that I could find. I didn't even know it was something you could make. And while I would love to do some research for you, neither Dev or I wanted that crap on our browser history. Yeah. We did a nose game, and they were like, no, neither of us want that. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So um, here, Dev is going to read some texts um, that were exchanged 
between these boys as they were planning. And this was all in evidence that we found. Okay, so this comes directly from the state of New Hampshire versus Stephen Spader. They obviously pulled some of his texts for uh, the case. And it says, like, he's my least favorite kind of texter. Like, Connor and I have a very distinct texting style. Connor loves using the winky faces. I do. I'm very flirty. Yeah. This is, like, not, this is my least favorite kind of texter. He goes, it's Stevie, like, all lowercase. You got to get out soon, cuz. Cuz spelled with two Z's and a U. We ready. We need the completion of DOD to go on. So he, like, I guess had sent that to Glover about um, getting... He sent it to, um... Did he send it to Glover? Yeah, to Glover. About, okay. like, what what they needed to prep for the, yeah, yeah, for yeah. the crimes. Um, the one that you're thinking of is the longer exchange, and that was between um, Gribble and Spader. So I guess, like, there was a party. Like, this was right before... This was, like, a couple days, I think, okay. before they were going to do it. And it was when they were starting to, like, stockpile things that they could be using for their crime. Yeah. Um, and one of the supplies that they had planned to gather was like acetone, like a uh, nail polish remover. Mm-hmm. Um, so Gribble said to Spader, hey man, I'm trying to get some acetone to clean something off and I don't have any. Anyway, we can get some, to, at Wal- we can go to Walmart and get some, some way on, on the way to the party. And then like Spader's like, well, IDK where Bill is, but Quinn is coming too. And then I guess like, he's like, word up, dude uh what should i bring to the party like it just it's like i'm not trying to pick apart i guess how they're texting but i'm like the point of the of reading some of their texts is like they were talking about these things as if it's like it's just like fun i'm gonna pick up some donuts can you pick up some donuts on the way to jill's party yeah it's insane okay so i'm not gonna read all of the uh, messages that they sent um but there's a there's a ton of them in the case if you're interested but one of the final ones that when they're talking about the supplies is spader sent to gribble word any plastic garbage bags you have uh we need them for cleaning up after and then gribble texted back yep got for force flex and then spader was like word we'll have fun and when billy shows up i'll text you so it's just like again just like the casualty that they had about all of this and it's just it's mind-boggling um so another crazy thing that i found about gribble was hours after the attack he updated his facebook and wrote uh dexter is such a funny show and he didn't think that was going to come back to haunt him? Like, what the heck? Um, uh, so during the um, trial, again, you know, kind of going back to uh, Gribble and his, like, just, like, how casual he was about the whole thing, he talked about how when he was attacking Jamie, the daughter, this is a direct quote, um, he said, the only thought that really entered my mind at that point was, wow, this looks like a CSI scene. Because it was. It was just like something that they would have had on a CSI episode, you know? Later he said, um, I stabbed her, meaning Jamie, once or twice in the chest. Then at some point she tried pulling away from me. I remember sometime during all of this, she asked me, why are you doing this? And keep in mind, like, this is during the trial. Like, Jamie, I don't believe was here for this. Um, she wasn't here for any of it, but what was actually, I really thought was cool is, um, one of the articles I read. It said that um, she was there to watch him at his the sentencing and got to watch him get taken away in chains, which, which I feel like would be really good closure. Like, I mean, as good closure like as you can get in this situation. Get. Yeah. And um, like, I know we talked about how he sounded like Lord Disick, but um, you can totally tell that he's doing it for the notoriety. Yeah. And like, he the way he talks about it, like he wants to be famous. Yeah. Like, oh yeah, I was in CSI. I mean, he's he's testifying about these heinous acts that he did to this little girl, and he's ending each line with you know you know yeah yeah. and uh he said he threw her against a glass door and she fell on the floor 
he kicked her and slashed her in the face with the machete. Um, and then again, you know, Kate's told the investigators that she played dead while he checked on her mom, while Gribble checked on her mom. Gribble said that if he had known um, Jamie was alive, that he would have killed her because he didn't want her to have to live with the aftermath of the killing. He told the officers that he'd wanted to kill someone for a long time and said that it's cool because it's different. He also told the police that he and Spader were sociopaths. Which, which inc- I, incorrect use, they're yeah, psychopaths. Yeah, they're psychopaths, they are not sociopaths. One thing that, another thing that really stuck out to me was, like, saying that, like, oh, if I'd known she was alive, I would have, like, made sure to kill her, you know, so she doesn't have to live with that. Like, dude, living with what you did to her. Like, none of this had to happen. And for you to be, like, thinking, you know, like, oh, I should have just, you know, killed her so she wouldn't have to live with this, like, thing that I did to her. And just, like, so crazy and so horrible. And actually, I found um, some information about Jamie, um... from last year, a WMUR article, and there was actually a little video of her. Um, Jamie's 22 now. She's like three years younger than us. Um, uh, so the article was from 2019, and uh, it was at a charity or scholarship golf event that was in honor of her mom. Uh, she's a beautiful young woman. She was getting ready to graduate college at the time. She's probably graduated by now. And it was just really heartwarming to see how she looks, and she's you know lovely, and she has a beautiful smile. And is just, you know, able to talk about our mom and, you know, smile about our mom. And, um, I just thought that was really cool. And, like, the guys got what they deserve. Like, an 11-year-old outsmarted them. Yeah. And obviously what happened to her is horrific, but they're all behind bars. She came back from what happened. She's doing amazingly. She's beautiful. She... Oh, yeah. Exactly. So, Gribble pleaded not guilty by reason of insanity. The jury found him sane and guilty of all the charges. And honestly... If you watch the videos, you'll be like, this man, or this kid, this 19-year-old, is 100% sane. Like, he is just a horrible human. So, like, okay, so Spader was pleading not guilty. So his trial was, like, trying to prove if he did or didn't do the crimes. Gribble had owned up to doing the crimes. Yeah. But he was trying to prove if he was sane or not sane, right? Right, he was trying to prove he was insane. And so, during his trial, he talked extensively about his childhood... Uh, he blamed his behavior on the way he was raised. He grew up Mormon, and he was homeschooled, and he said he committed murders because he wanted to have a social life. That really doesn't make a lot of sense to me. Um, he was homeschooled by his mom. Uh, he was a Boy Scout. His dad, Richard, said that he and his wife tried to teach their son um, right from wrong and aimed to instill a set of values in him. During the trial, more than one witness um, praised the Gribble's dedication to their sons. Um, Gribble, however, Christopher, the son, um, claimed that he was abused by his mother so extremely that he wanted to kill her. Did he say what he believed was the abuse? Like, I couldn't find a whole lot about this, so I found this on a website called Homeschooling's Invisible Children, which also is a whole rabbit hole. I would delete hole. those cookies from your browser. It is, it is a, a whole um, rabbit hole. He does talk a little more in detail about... Um, what his mom did. He said as a child that she would regularly pin him to the couch and told him not to make any noise while she popped acne and other sores on his back and legs. His mom admitted um, that she had spanked him so hard when he was five that she, he wet himself and that she broke the spoon used during spanking. Um, I mean, that's horrible. It is horrible. But I mean, this is not. Get spanked no, and they don't and, kill and people. this is not an excuse, but this was this was his defense. 
acquaintances of Gribble said that he was uh, awkward, laughed nervously, and just he didn't pick up on social cues well. So he is maybe, maybe this is like a little less surprising coming from him. Uh, kind of a uh, an odd... An oddball. Yeah, exactly. Um, his dad also said that he was very intelligent, um, but that he had trouble telling when someone wanted him to stop talking or picking up on other cues. So again, that, you know... Uh, you know, points to he was not a dumb person, but uh, so he was maybe socially off, but he wasn't mentally ill. No, no. So Gribble was um, sent to prison in 2011. He did appeal his case. Uh, he did not win his appeal. And oh, actually, shocking! Yeah, shocking. Actually, it's really interesting the appeal. So if you want to do research, we will link it. I wanted to talk about it, but we've already done a lot. So because um, there was a lot to cover. I can only listen to Connor for so long before I need a break, so I, mean, I can only I can only listen to myself for so long. I'm just kidding. I can listen to myself all day. Yeah, we know. Um, so anyway, he went to prison in 2011, and he was in a um, special housing unit where he had no contact with other inmates. But I found, again, a WMUR article um, from 2013, um, and it said he was moved to a close custody unit where he would have had a cellmate and could interact with inmates. But within three hours... He was in a fight and was treated for minor, minor facial injuries. Um, the fight took place in the recreation yard, and it involved an unknown inmate or inmates, officials said. Gribble was very quickly moved back to um, special housing, where he has lived since then. In the special housing unit, um, the inmates are locked down 22 to 23 hours a day, and they live in isolation all of the time. Yeah, so, as he I mean, should be. I kind of think he deserves it. I think that he's exactly where he deserves yeah. to be. Yeah. Wait. Okay. Now I don't know if homeschoolers use different math than I than us public schoolers, but I think you said there were five guys. <laughs> number one, we don't do math. <laughs> um, but number two, yes, there were five. Um, so in November of two thousand nine, the year that this occurred, a fifth suspect was arrested. Um, this fifth suspect was named Autumn Savoy. He was 20 years old and he lived in Hollis, New Hampshire, which we are literally less than a mile from mm-hmm. the Hollis border. And right like now. Hollis, Brookline is a joint school district. Yeah. So that's probably how he knew some of these kids. Um, so anyway, um, he was charged with providing a false alibi. He had said the suspect slept at his house the night of the attack. Um, along with this, he was also charged with conspiracy to destroy evidence. Um, shortly after the murders um savoy helped spader and gribble dump their bloody clothing in the nashua river um he also helped them i'd mentioned that um jamie said she had heard them say that they were going to steal things and they did steal things and they dumped it all in the river why would he implicate himself like that i know along with the ipod um he pled guilty um and he was sentenced to five to twelve years in prison for hindering um apprehension and conspiracy just as a side note, I do love you, Dev, but if you show up at my house and ask me to get rid of bloody clothing, I am 100% going to pass. That was another thing when all of this went down that I remember as a kid, like, people being like, why would he help them? Like, why, if your friend showed up, like, with bloody knives and clothing and things, why would you help them get rid of it? It's just, like, so crazy to me. In May of 2015, the parole board ruled to release Savoy on um, probation. You will be under intense scrutiny we expect you to toe the line um that was a board member named barbara maloney um that's what she said to him at the hearing after the hearing a um a friend of the kate's family his name is chris lussier he's actually been in a couple interviews that i've seen um but he was a good friend of kimberly and her families um 
he is quoted by the Associated Press to say to Savoy, not actually to him, but this is what he would say to him. Um, you have been given a piece of freedom. Do something with it. Be productive. Make it count. He also said that he doesn't forgive Savoy, but that he hopes um, he succeeds in life. Uh, I did do some research, and I couldn't find any articles or information on Autumn Savoy that were more recent than 2015. And I feel like in this instance, no news is kind of good news. I mean, as he was involved, his involvement was relatively minor, still really crappy. Um, but, you know, I hope he has found peace with what he's done and has turned his life around. And hopefully, you know, not hearing anything indicates that. So we haven't talked a lot about Steven Spader. And honestly, when Connor and I were planning beforehand, we really didn't want to talk a lot about Sp Steven Spader. One, because anyone that's covered the case has gone into depth about Steven Spader, but also because that was kind of what he wanted from the crime. Yeah. The notoriety and recognition for what he did. So I found an article about who he was as a little kid. And I thought this was interesting because I know a lot of times the nature versus nurture argument comes up with cases like this. Have you seen the movie We Need to Talk About Kevin? Uh, yes. That is the most disturbing movie I've ever seen. Yeah. And it really dives into that. And I think the way that Kevin behaves kind of reminds me of Steven. So Steven was, he was a very personable kid when he was little. He played with other children in the neighborhood. He was a mediocre athlete thanks to flat feet and asthma. Connor knows what that's like. Huh. Um, but then he ended up entering drama, and he played Daddy Warbucks in a school production of Annie, even shaved his head for the role. Um, it was an interview that his mother did for the Nashua Telegraph. When uh, Stephen was like 15 or 16, I think, he switched schools. And when he switched schools, he kind of reinvented himself. So he liked horror hip-hop. He started hanging out with a bad crowd. Um, he met his girlfriend, who later uh, had a baby in January 2010, which means he became a father while he was in prison. The crowd that he hung out with, like, his mother, when she did the interview with the Nashua Telegraph, they were kind of going over a timeline of why he cracked, or really, I guess, when he did. And like we said, when he switched schools, that was kind of, I guess, the catalyst for some of these changes. Uh his the girlfriend that he met her at a roller rink, which like Connor and I used to go to roller rinks all the time. Yeah, I had a homeschool group at a roller, a roller rink. rink. <laughs> um, but he met it and he met his girlfriend there. He got really involved with the darker crowd after that, and they smoked a lot of weed. They acted like they were in gangs. They they probably wore etnies and had chains on their pants. Like uh, he he became violent, and his parents. I think they really did the best that they could. He, um, they sent him to a program for teens that were lashing out and struggling. Like multiple programs, I found. And um, so this is a direct quote from the National Telegraph article that I was talking about. Uh, I guess while he was one in these programs and then later when he was uh, undergoing psychiatric evaluations, they, quote, found evidence of narcissistic personality traits, borderline personality disorder traits, antisocial and asocial personality disorder traits, and he had previously been diagnosed with antisocial personality disorder. Um all of this is to say that before he was evaluated and found to have these personality disorders, there was no earlier indication that he was going to go on and try to kill a family. Like his yeah. parents, they did yeah. the best that they could. Mm -hmm. Was he challenging? Yes. But like how many of us tried to sneak out of our homes or maybe hung out with a friend that oh, our parents yeah. didn't love? Smoked some weed, whatever. Um, so you may be curious what happened to Spader and Gribble. Connor, you're going to close this out, right? Yeah, I'm just going to do a little wrap-up here. So, um, Stephen Spader was sentenced to life plus 76 years. Um, Christopher Gribble was sentenced to life plus a minimum of 75 additional years. 
At global sentencing, the judge said that there was no mitigating factors in this case and that she was not going to go into the bottomless number of aggravating factors in this case. Infinity is not enough jail time for you, she said. And I literally watched his sentencing, um, and it was really weird because uh, he's just like, yeah, I understand. It was just it's like, like stone-faced. Yeah, so odd. Because of the Supreme Court's uh, Miller versus Alabama 2012 ruling that circumscribed the sentencing of, of minors to life sentences, both Spader and Gribble were granted sentencing rehearings. Apparently content with his life sentence, Spader informed his attorneys during an April 2013 resentencing hearing that he did not want a reduction in the sentence, describing himself as the most sick and twisted person you'll ever meet. Wait, he literally said that at yeah, his he hearing? he literally said that. He, he, he didn't even go to the hearing. That's what he told his lawyers. Oh my god. Yeah. So the New Hampshire legislature actually ended up expanding the crimes punishable by death by the death penalty to include murder during a home invasion due to this murder. Okay. Um, and again, you know, kind of back to that, I did say earlier that this case changed lives. And, you know, I think the lives we need to remember first are obviously Kimberly Cates, who lost hers, and um, Jamie, who lost her mom and has to deal with the aftermath of that day, October 4th, 2009, forever. And, you know, David Cates, who is who was uh, Jamie's dad and Kimberly's husband. I'm going to read directly from an article that I think sums up the effect that this has had on the family and the community well. It was written by um, Sean Wickham for the New Hampshire Sunday News. Um, and this is Lieutenant James Garrity, the commander of the New Hampshire State Police, talking. Um, he said, people went and got dogs. People went and got guns. People put bars on their windows. It just really struck home. What also shocked many local residents, Garrity said, was that teens came, the teens came from families who were respected in their communities. I think that's what gets people, is that they knew these kids. Of all the cases he has worked in his five years in major crimes, Garrity said that this one stands out. You know why it's different? Because we have a live victim, and we don't get a lot of live victims. Um, watching Jamie Cates grow has been impressive, Garrity said, because I saw the strength in that little girl. Each year, David Cates holds a golf tournament on the anniversary of the attack for a scholarship in his wife's name. I kind of talked about this earlier. Um, I read an article about, or I was quoting an article about um, uh, Jamie Cates, and this is the event she was at when she did the interview in 2019. Uh, Garrity says that David Cates does this to take back the date. He and other troopers who worked on the case play in the tournament. It's nice to see family, the family and the strength that they showed. Jeffrey Streslin, or Strelzin is the attorney general for the state of New Hampshire, and um, in this article it says that Streslin keeps a photo of Kim, David, and Jamie Cates on Aww. his desk. It's a measure of how deeply this case touched him. You can't meet David and Jamie Cates and not, and not walk away affected. As a prosecutor, he said, you can never make it right in a murder case because the victim's gone forever and there's nothing you can do. But you can give people a small measure of justice and maybe the chance to get a little bit of peace in their lives. For the families of murder victims, he said, the case will never really be over, because every birthday, holiday, every significant event, is just a reminder of that your loved one is gone. And it's not because they got sick, or because they got old, and it's not because of an accident, it's because someone decided to take them away from you. It's not something everyday life equips you to deal with, he said, and when you meet these families, you will see what the lasting effects are. So I talked a, a little bit about that um, scholarship, the Kimberly Cates Memorial Scholarship Fund, um, and they do still do the golf tournament every year for it, as of not last year. I don't know, with COVID, I don't think they did it this year, I'm not sure. But um, 
you actually can um, donate to the fund. It's raised over a quarter of a million dollars. That's um, amazing. Yeah, it's really cool. It's like a cool legacy for her to have. Um, and we will link the le- website below if you're interested in sending a donation. Uh, there's a You can donate online or there's a mailing address, so we will make sure to link that below. And you should check it out. There's some pictures of her on there and um, a little bit of her story. And obviously what these boys did to this family is horrific but kimberly's legacy lives on yeah jamie's thriving yeah. best she can yeah and, and a lot of um kimberly's friends like if you listen to interviews they say that um jamie's a lot like her and she has her mom's smile and her mom's you know care and like just love for people which is you know it's really neat and, that they can see that and where where are speed and gribble are they are they rotting in jail <laughs> thank god Life plus 75 years. (laughs) Okay, so obviously this was a little bit heavier. For sure. And um, we decided we're going to release two episodes this week. So the second one, totally different, has to do with arson, crazy cases. Um, So if this one was a little bit heavier for you, don't worry. We have a a second episode you can listen to. If If you get sick of Aunt Kathy asking you when you're going back to school... You can just like put on another forty minutes of yeah. the Mass Hysteria we'll podcast. For a while. And in the spirit of giving in the Christmas season or holiday season, you know, why don't we all just like t- give five dollars to this scholarship fund? This is Kimberly Cates Memorial Scholarship Fund. We will link it below. Link it below. Um, happy holidays, everyone. Stay safe and um, enjoy. Bye.